Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital media and the arts. My name is Cheyenne Homan, and in this episode, we'll be talking with the Director of Internet Rights at the Ford Foundation, Jenny Toomey. My name is Jenny Toomey, and I am the Director of the Internet Rights Unit at the Ford Foundation. Okay, and can you tell me about the Internet Rights Unit? Sure. Um, well, the Internet Rights Unit is, is kind of new. It's only been around for two years, although I've been at Ford for, I'm in my eighth year. The Internet Rights Unit grew out of the work that I was doing before in an area called Media Rights and Access, which worked on all sorts of media issues. So it looked at media concentration, it looked at access questions, it looked at low-power radio, um, it looked at spectrum policy, it looked at all sorts of issues. And about, I don't know, six years ago, we made a decision to really narrow the focus and focus almost completely on internet policy. Largely because so few other foundations uh, were paying attention to the issues. And, you know, we could see the writing on the wall that all kinds of speech and access to knowledge and organizing and art and every kind of thing, commerce, uh, media, was all going to be moving into these internet pipes. And um, there weren't any clear rules that could ensure that, you know, people would have access, first of all, as a right. And then more importantly, that once they were online, they didn't give up all the rights that they actually had offline, just because the rules hadn't been put in place. So um, we focused on those questions really, really intensely for the past six years. Are there any grantees that you're working with currently that you're really excited about what they're doing? All of my grantees. One, one thing that people don't tell you when you come to a foundation is that you're going to have many, 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 many more good ideas and inspiring people than you will have funds. Uh, every single one that gets picked is, you know, is someone that we believe deeply has a contribution that can't be discounted to the work that we're trying to, to achieve. So if you want to go back a couple of decades and talk about what you were doing in the early 90s with Simple Machines and how that sort of arced to what you're doing now. So uh, so I grew up in a suburb of Washington, D.C. in the 80s. And when I was growing up, you know, some of the folks who were in my high school and in the sister high schools around the city uh, were some of the folks that started the DIY punk rock movement. In particular, I'm thinking about Jeff Nelson and Ian Mackay, who started Discord Records, but all the people who helped work and support that record label and the bands that were on it. And um, being around moments of this kind of, you know, change and opportunity is really inspiring. And if you're lucky enough to be born at a time when there is that kind of a movement happening where you're near, you know, it can often give you the sense that anything is possible. And it certainly changed the trajectory of my life, you know, and so many people that I met at that time. Very quickly, there were all sorts of other record labels that were up and running. You know, there were uh, what, you know, when those bands first started, there wasn't a touring circuit for this kind of music. And by the time we were actually in bands and touring, you know, we could take advantage of the inroads that they had made and the relationships they had made. And, and, you know, we began to tour 
and uh, and I was lucky that I was also part of a very strong activist community, and um, it was a it was an inspiring time where you know lots and lots of political action was happening. Uh, living in Washington means that you know you are always around politics, the big civil rights marches, the the big anti-war marches, the the marches uh, to push back about whatever is going wrong. They all come through D.C. and it all sort of infused the soup that we lived in. And um, and out of that soup, I got very interested in being in bands and I got very interested in activism and I got very interested in putting out our own records. And uh, and so that's what I did for many years with my partner in crime, um, Kristen Thompson. So what's different about the work that you did through Simple Machines and putting together guides and participating in that scene uh, as compared to what you're doing now with the Ford Foundation or the Future of Music Coalition? You know, I have a sort of weird trajectory, but it, it all makes a lot of sense when you when you think about it. I got super, super interested in the Internet when it first started happening. And I was lucky because I had a day job at the Washington Post. And that meant I had a fast connection, which not a lot of people had at that moment. And so, you know, in the first weeks that eBay came online or, you know, um, Google, you know, I was looking at it uh, and imagining what this future would be. And it was interesting because a lot of the the narrative around the do-it-yourself culture, in some ways it had a, you know, I mean, I think some of the punks would hate it if I say this, but I think it's true. Some of it had kind of a, a hippie quality to it because it was like, hey, let's, it's not like a tune out and drop out or that kind of stuff, but it really was about let's not participate in the mainstream. Let's let's um, create our own world. You know, we don't want to be part of your your commerce. We don't want to be part of your your commercial radio or your major label. We're going to put out our own records. We're going to book our own tours, and and that and that was the ideology. But what I had seen is, you know, in the post Nirvana world, where suddenly all of these artists became mainstream artists there was a huge corrosive connection between sort of the commercial music industry and the and the do-it-yourself industry. And the fact that people had stayed in do-it-yourself didn't protect them from experiencing the enormous change that happened once the major labels started engaging and paying attention. So when the internet happened, I was really, really excited because I felt like, you know, maybe if artists could directly connect with their fans at a large level, you know, if they, and they didn't have to work with these intermediaries, then they wouldn't be so victimized by all of the radio stations being controlled by payola or increased concentration in the radio that made it very difficult for independent radio stations to exist anymore because they were all consolidated into these handful of radio chains. And we thought, well, you know, let's look at the internet and figure out what's good about it, what's bad about it. And and when we had run our record label, we had put a guide to putting out records out, and that had been a great success, and lots and lots and lots of people sent us, it was originally two stamps, you sent us two stamps, and we would send you the guide to putting out records. But lots of people had got it, you know, thousands of people got our guide. And so we thought, well, maybe we can create one like this that would deal with the uh, internet questions. Because, you know, here we were, we we had this record label, Simple Machines. We had a catalog of 70 different releases we had made. We had all of these tech companies reaching out to us to try to get us to sign with them. And um, we decided to figure it out for ourselves, you know, whether we liked this website because they uh, allowed us to set our own price or this website because they didn't make a sign a contract or this website because 
They had a commitment to being independent. And we began trying to measure all of these shifting different options. And we ultimately were trying to get like a consumer reports page where anybody who had put out a record could show up, look at the check marks and know what uh, would be the best option for them. And while we were doing this, the internet bubble burst. And when that happened, very quickly, all of the sort of positive ideology and good vibes disappeared. And, you know, some of the most progressive of the websites went out of business or were purchased by some of the most conservative websites. And very quickly, we learned it wouldn't be enough just to give artists advice about which labels or which websites to affiliate themselves with, but rather we needed to go deeper into understanding what was going to happen with this big change. And so while it seems weird that I went from being, you know, a punk rocker to being someone who ran an NGO on music and technology issues, um, it was a real natural trajectory because we just got super fascinated about what good and bad was coming with, you know, this sea change that the internet was bringing. And through that process, I was able to you know, many, many, many years later, um, I got a grant from the Ford Foundation looking at how artists saw copyright all around the world and and looking at all of the cultural differences, you know, because in some parts of the world, there are real legitimate cultural reasons why everything should be, you know, very expensive or why communities should have control of their copyright. For example, indigenous communities, you know, that don't think about property the same way. And then in some parts of the world, like, you know, people who had lived under repressive dictatorships, the idea that anything should be locked up would mean that, uh, you know, basically the only way they had access to news about what was happening in the Western world was through pirated information. So piracy had a very different cultural meaning for them. And so in doing this project, I met some people at Ford, and ultimately when there was a job open to come to Ford, um, you know, I was asked to apply, and I was lucky enough to get it. And, and that's how I ended up coming here. For you personally, have you noticed significant changes in music policy or access? Um, and, and how do you think that digitizing the means of production sort of for musicians has changed accessibility for fans? Well, I think like, you know, any technology and any technology as big as the Internet changes everything. And there are real positives and real negatives. And you can see this throughout history. You know, I mean, there was a moment where there was, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of union musicians in New York City that could uh, get a living wage and feed their families and have a nice life. And that happened before sound was connected to films, because in order to show films, you need to have orchestras and you need to have orchestras who would be able to play, you know, all five showings of the film every day. And in that environment, um, you know, the real destructive technology that really kind of, you know, ate the music unions out from the inside was, you know, was just sound, <laughs> adding sound to film. And so you, you can't, you know, no technology um, comes as a neutral uh, good or a neutral bad. So I think that there's all sorts of really wonderful things that have happened now that the internet has, uh, you know, has allowed music to be compressed and, uh, and sent and accessed and posted and compiled. And, you know, and then there's all sorts of other challenges that have come out of that environment. And, you know, what was so interesting about being able to be part of the conversations 
about music was that, you know, music was really the canary in the coal mine because those files were small enough. Um, but the same sorts of enormous transformations that we've seen in the music industry, you know, has been doing this to everything. You know, has been doing it to uh, journalism, certainly in the first years that I was at Ford, you know, is doing it uh, with film and will do it in every single sector. And so, I mean, I think if you saw the net gain event we had at Ford a couple of weeks ago, and you could see it if you just Google Vimeo and Ford Foundation, a lot of what that event was about is, I mean, I think some of the, the biggest work that I've tried to do at Ford is to consistently make an argument that the internet questions can't be siloed away from the other historic areas that foundations have worked because the internet's changing everything. You know, if you work in education, you can't not think about universal access for everyone so they can all have access to the same amount of knowledge so they can do homework in the same way that they can learn the skills that will give them the ability to have jobs in the future you know if you're working on human rights you can't think about it separate from the internet which is increasingly a way that people organize and frankly is increasingly a way that you know repressive governments or corporations surveil individuals uh, in an environment that's completely non-transparent and non-accountable. And so, you know, a lot of the work that I think I've been able to do at Ford internally is to consistently make the arguments about being smarter about uh, how technology is creating new opportunities, but also really serious new challenges that need to be faced head on. Yeah. What's on the horizon for you? Do you have any anything in the works or any initiatives that you're excited about? You know, one thing I'm very excited about is a partnership that we started last year with Mozilla Foundation. And Mozilla, you know, Foundation are the the foundation side of Mozilla, which manages the Firefox browser. And um, we've worked with them to try to put together a class of technology fellows that'll go into NGOs and help those NGOs think in a more strategic way about how the internet is changing things. And what was exciting to me about it was that we um, we weren't sure how many candidates we would get that would be qualified. You know, we thought we'd be happy if we could just get 50 candidates because, you know, we're, we're trying to do just a handful the first year and a little bit more next year and a little more the next year. But we ended up with over 550 candidates from all around the world that met the criteria and were qualified to be fellows. And this just says to me, I mean, for the first time in many years, I feel very optimistic that we're going to have a lot of smart intersectional thinkers that are going to be able to go into the public sector, going into government, going into NGOs, going into hopefully philanthropy to help us be smarter about our blind spots and um, and, and to make sure that these technologies really serve us and, and don't um, underserve us. What's so amazing about the people who do this work seriously is they really live in the weeds and the weeds change. You know, the weeds last year are different from the weeds this year. There, there are people who are really comfortable glossing over the top <laughs> of these issues. But, um, but, you know, my job here at Ford is always finding the people who, you know, are the experts and giving them the resources and the platform to be experts. And so I don't ever like to get in the way of that. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's it's very important to note that the work that I do and the work that you do like wouldn't be possible without all the other people that are working just as hard on the things that they specialize in. So, yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time out today to join me. Okay. Thanks Talk so to much. You later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive and is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. 
Our theme song this week is The Spider-Man's Nano Loop by Uncle Bibby and can be found at freemusicarchive.org. For more information about the Ford Foundation, please visit fordfoundation.org. 